Welcome to episode seven of the All Things Local podcast. On this episode, I speak with Linnea erickson Laskowski from Safe Passage, DeKalb County's Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Crisis Center. Linnea shares her journey from student to advocate. She reminds us that sexual assault and domestic violence does not discriminate by income, ethnicity, race, gender, or sexual orientation. Safe Passage works with so many entities to support their clients and could use our community's help. So think about volunteering, donating funds, or items they're in need of, like gas gift cards, especially as we come into the holiday season. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to our podcast, All Things Local, a monthly podcast about issues and ideas in our local communities from the people who research and serve them, brought to you by the School of Public and Global Affairs at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Dr. Alicia Shadiman, Associate Professor here at NIU. We'll hear from researchers and public service workers in government and nonprofit organizations across communities about topics and issues affecting our towns, villages, cities, and neighborhoods. So my name is Linnea Erickson-Laskowski. I am the Director of Prevention and Communication Services at Safe Passage. Um, DeKalb County's Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Crisis Center. I've been working with Safe Passage for about four years. I originally moved out to DeKalb for grad school, um, was really interested in nonprofit administration and nonprofit management. After graduation, um, decided to stay in the community, worked first at Kish Health System in program management, and from there um, started getting involved in the community, came across Safe Passage at a community event, um, got caught in with the VAWA subcommittees that were going on at NIU, and that kind of looped me in from the hospital into Safe Passage, and I've been there ever since and have loved working for them. My undergrad degree was in history with a minor in political science. But where, where did you get your start? What was your like first job? Yeah, my first job, beyond kind of the standard babysitting, yeah. things like that, right. um, my first job was as a lifeguard at the Slater Community Pool. So my teeny little town of a thousand people growing up had a big pool and they let 16 year olds be in charge of keeping kids alive there. So I was a lifeguard and I, um, I worked there for several summers um, throughout high school. And then I was a camp counselor and continued lifeguarding and doing canoeing and ad adventure camping and all sorts of outdoorsy things that I do not do anymore, but lifeguarding was my start in the professional world. And was that a for a public agency, or was that, I'm assuming it was maybe a park district or something, or do you know, a community pool? It was a community pool. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was just owned by this, I think it's just yeah. owned by the city, so yeah. our teeny little town um, had managed to pool their resources, so to speak, over <laughs> the years, and had had that pool for about 50 years. Um, so, yeah, it's just, just run locally. That you had yeah, a, a public service yeah, yeah. kind of orientation. I've never thought about that before, 16. but yeah, yeah. Started in public service. There you go. <laughs> I didn't it. even realize. <laughs> um, you want to talk to us about Safe Passage, what you guys do, and what your mission is, how you serve the community? Yeah, absolutely. So, our mission at Safe Passage is to support survivors and end violence through advocacy, intervention, and prevention. We work on issues of domestic violence and sexual assault. We're a dual agency um, working on both issues. Um, most, we've been in the community since 1981. We originally began as a grassroots network of safe houses, people who recognized that domestic violence was a problem in our community and that people needed safe places to go. So there was a network of volunteers who would open their homes for the night and say, if you don't have a safe place to go, 
you can come stay with me. Tomorrow night, you're going to go stay with someone else. After that, you're going to go stay with someone else. And eventually, they realized that needed to be a little bit more formal. So they created a, an official organization, and it's grown from that to what it is today, um, an organization with over 50 employees, um, a wide variety of services, not just addressing survivors of domestic violence, not just providing shelter, but really looking to provide 360 degrees of service to make sure we're addressing the entire issue of violence and, and how it impacts our community. So we have a shelter, an emergency shelter, where people of all genders and their families can come and stay if they need a safe place to go. We also have long-term housing for people who have some greater barriers that they're going to need to overcome to get to a safe place. Some people who um, have been financially abused and they don't have the resources to start over, they need more time to build a resume, to go back to school, to find childcare, um, people who are undocumented and are going through the process to apply for a visa as a survivor of violence, um, a, a wide variety of issues. Someone might need more time. So we have a two-year transitional housing program for people who need uh, a little bit more support over a longer period of time. We have counseling services for kids and adults, individual group and family for domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, we have legal advocacy where we help people navigate the court system. We assist people with getting orders of protection, civil no contact orders. We even just attend court with people as emotional support, knowing that that can be very traumatic. We can check in on their case with their attorney, with law enforcement, just make sure things are proceeding and keep a survivor updated on that process. We respond 24 hours a day to local emergency rooms and police departments to offer support to survivors of violence who are coming into an emergency room or reporting a crime to law enforcement to make sure they have all the information they need and the support they need. We have prevention education. Um, we're in schools in the county, K through 12. We're also at universities. We work with community groups and we offer professional training to law enforcement, hospital staff, teachers, clergy, anyone who might be working closely with victims in the course of their career to make sure they know uh, the information they need to best meet survivors' needs. And then we have our offender intervention program where we're working directly with harm doers, with the offenders of uh, violence who've either been court ordered to uh, complete a partner abuse intervention program or who've recognized just in their own life that they've got a problem and they need help. They can come in. We have a six-month psychoeducational program where offenders will address the issues of violence, learn to take accountability for their actions, and maybe learn some healthier skills for relationships in the future. Um, all of our services for survivors are provided completely free of charge as long as someone needs them whenever they need them. How have you seen, even these last couple of years, how has that transformed what you guys do? We're really on a precipice. Not that things are changing with what kind of violence exists or with what kind of violence is tolerated, but more with what kind of violence is talked about. Because in the past, these kinds of violence always existed, but we just swept it under the rug, or we ignored it, or we um, got to go through our lives not realizing it was a problem if it wasn't directly affecting us. But now, especially with the Me Too movement, we're really seeing that we're not hiding this anymore. People are coming forward, and we're realizing what a widespread problem this was. Um, lots of people already knew, especially if they were a survivor of violence or worked in this field, knew what a widespread problem it was. But now, really, society as, as a whole is having to reckon with that. And that's one of the, the interesting things about working in this field, um, especially as you look at data and evaluation and things like that, is that you can't judge how effective programs are or how much a culture is changing by how many people are reporting. Because what we really see is that 
when society is improving, when it starts to become safer for survivors, you see more people come forward because they know that they'll be supported, because they know they'll be able to access justice, because they know people will believe them. So sometimes you see these shifts like with the Me Too movement, and you almost it almost feels like, well, there's more happening than there used to be. There's more violence. No, it was always this bad. We're just finally talking about it now, and people finally feel safe enough to let someone know what's going on. So we probably haven't reached that peak Oh, yet. for sure not. Um, and there's probably lots of barriers out there, but. Can you think of a couple, you th you, we still need to do a better job at this so that we can actually get more people coming forward and really addressing this. I, I, I don't think we've reached the, the yeah. summit quite yet. I think the way we respond to survivors when they come forward mm -hmm. still leaves a lot to be desired. It's better. Um, we do see in the aftermath of the Me Too movement a lot more people saying, oh, that was my experience too. I, I've been through the same thing. I know where you're coming from. And there's almost a community of survivors that are supporting each other. But we still haven't seen a huge shift in people who aren't survivors or people who tend to exist in a more privileged group who are coming to bat for survivors. To... So you don't have that ally force. Exactly. Quite yet. Yeah. A, a lot of survivors are really finding their voice, which is incredibly powerful. But we also need those people who hold some positions of power to be the ones saying, I believe survivors. If you come forward, I believe you, I support you, it's not your fault. And we're still seeing. Um, a lot of backlash to survivors when they come forward. You just have to look at the comments on any, you know, online reporting about cases that have been prominent in the news. Look at any Twitter feed and you'll just see people coming out of the woodwork to blame victims or to disbelieve victims when they come forward. So we really need um, people to step up in that area. So a lot of what you do, I imagine you work a lot with government agencies and other nonprofits. What are some mm -hmm. key partnerships that you guys have and how has that evolved over time so that's mm -hmm. strengthened? Well, of course, NIU. Um, one of our you know primary community needs is to make sure everyone is safe and that includes students, whether they've lived here their whole lives or whether they're living here for four years while they go to university. Um, we know that sexual assault and domestic violence are higher um, among this population. It uh, Young people aged 18 to 24 tend to be at some of the highest risk for domestic violence and sexual assault, and that's your typical age for college students. So we know that it's a community that's at high risk, and it's also a community that really has a hard time coming forward. Um, it's estimated that 90% of the time when someone's sexually assaulted on a college campus, they don't tell anyone about it. So we've been working with NIU over the years to make sure that not only the services that NIU provides are accessible and available for students, but that we're able to provide those students services to students as well. And students know that they have options, they have people who care, they've got neutral parties who are 100% on their side. And we've been able to kind of um, meet that need with NIU so they know it's not just an, a campus issue, this is a community-wide issue and we're part of the community welcoming you and wanting you to be safe. So making sure that our services complement NIU's and that every every option that a student could want is available. So that's been a, a really important partnership to make sure that we're reaching students as community members in DeKalb. Um, we've also been working really closely uh, over the last few years with the DeKalb County Nonprofit Partnership to provide training to our staff as we continue to professionalize. Um, domestic violence and sexual assault work has always been a grassroots 
um, led movement. And it's always been a survivor led movement. But at the same time, it has grown and expanded. Um, there's a lot more funding and a lot more resources available to agencies looking to provide this work. And we always want to be providing that work in the best way possible to best meet the needs of survivors. So DCNP has been an incredible wealth of training and resources for our staff and for our board to know how can we provide services, not just that we know in our hearts our survivors need and, and our community deserves, but services that we can prove are making a difference and are really meeting people's needs. So thinking about your staff, mm -hmm. a lot of the work that you do is pretty emotional, uh, pretty yes. intensive, yes. 24 hours a day, as you mm -hmm. said. Um, how do you how do you support your staff in this work mm -hmm. and what are the things in place for them to make sure that they're okay as they do this work yeah our i have been very impressed with safe passage for its commitment to staff well-being that's been one of my favorite things about working for this agency is that i feel valued as an individual and supported as an individual not just the the work that i do but who I am as a person. They really want you to, to be well as you're helping other people. And so our agency really invests in self-care. And that's everything from, you know, um, monthly get-togethers and fun activities that our staff plan for each other to holiday parties to self-care days where we re just recently had a self-care day where one of our staff led the rest of our staff in a journaling exercise and one of our other staff led an art therapy exercise. Um, we have wellness days where Kish Health System brings nurses out to do kind of your basic wellness checks. Um, so we do a lot of self-care activities and that's really encouraged and supported. We also have a generous PTO policy and it's not like in some agencies where you have PTO but you better not take it. <laughs> Right. It is encouraged. And paid to, time off. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Sorry, paid time yeah. off. Yeah. It is encouraged that you need to take some time off. You need to, you know, refill Recharge. your own batteries before you can really help anyone else. So it's encouraged that you're investing in yourself. You're really checking in with yourself and really knowing yourself well. So we have a, a really strong mindset towards staff development and um, investing in self-care. And that's so important because otherwise you burn out. And you're going to move on from those uh, helping agencies where you could experience a lot of vicarious trauma. Have you seen any changes in the types of people you're serving at Safe Passage just in the last couple of years? Are there, are there populations that are, that are shifting either um, demographically or um, any kind of any demographic changes that you've seen in the clients you serve? Our demographics tend to be pretty reflective of the demographics in our community. One of the things we know about domestic violence and sexual assault is that it impacts everyone pretty, pretty consistently across the board, across demographics. There are people who have greater access to resources, which means they need our services less. Um, for example, I, I think of our partner abuse intervention program. We know that the likelihood of someone being an offender cuts across every demographic. But the likelihood of someone being arrested, charged, and convicted of domestic battery does not. So we do see um, differences in racial demographics, um, resource demographics, um, education demographics of the people who are coming into the program because of the way our court system across the nation is kind of set up to disadvantage some people and advantage others. We don't see a lot of wealthy, straight, cisgendered 
white men <laughs> coming into an offender intervention program. Um, and similarly, in our victim services, we see that people who have a lot of resources, people who are wealthier, people who are from upper middle class, they tend to have other places that they can turn to for resources. So maybe they'll come and talk with one of our counselors, but they're less likely to need to stay in our shelter. They can afford to get a hotel room or they have a family member who can put them up for a while or they can afford to get a new apartment on their own. So we do see differences across demographics, particularly when it comes to socioeconomic status for who needs all of our services. Um, but we know that domestic violence and sexual assault happen equally across demographics. One of the things I would say that I've seen a shift in recently has been the need for services for undocumented survivors. We've seen as um, the current climate around immigration has gotten more and more toxic and more and more dangerous, um, survivors who are undocumented are really facing some deep, deep hurdles to safety. There's a lot of fear of if I don't do what my partner wants, they're going to call Immigration and Customs Enforcement and get me deported. So it's not safe for me to leave my partner, or it's not safe for me to disagree with my partner. Or if I want to press charges against my partner, I'm worried about calling the police because I don't know if that means immigration is going to be informed and I'll get arrested for that. So we're seeing a lot of undocumented victims who have found themselves in really dangerous situations and who aren't sure how to get out of that and maybe don't have other resources that they felt like they had access to in the past. So we're seeing more undocumented clients who are coming forward who need help from an agency um, that doesn't require documentation proof. So we've seen, I think, an increase in undocumented survivors calling and coming in for services. So how do you work with, but sometimes against, <laughs> law enforcement and the systems that you have to work within, mm -hmm. knowing that the system is also a challenge to the people that you serve? What are those kind of partnerships? What do they look like? Yeah. Courts and police. It's difficult because we know that ultimately at, at the core of everything, we all have the same goal. Law enforcement has the same goal of reducing violence. The court systems have the same goal in promoting community safety. Um, but often we have different kind of mindsets about how to get there. And so it's been really important for us over the last few years to make sure that we all understand one another, that it's not that it's not that we don't like cops or that we don't want to work with law enforcement or that we think they're the bad guys. And it's not that they think we're the bad guys who aren't trying to help. We're all for law enforcement. We're all for um, judicial, the judicial system providing justice. Um, but we also see some of the gaps in the system where calling the police doesn't always help or throwing someone in jail doesn't always help. That doesn't, that's not always the choice that's going to lead someone to safety. So we understand sometimes when our clients don't want to call the police or when some of our clients don't want to testify against their partner in court. We see where they're coming from with that. And our job isn't to talk them into doing that. Our job is to support them in whatever decision they think is safest for them. So we've been doing a lot of education with uh, the court system and with law enforcement and other helping professions over the last few years to make sure we kind of understand one another and we know there are times when our processes aren't going to line up, where we're not going to be working in the same way, but we also ultimately know that we're all working towards the same goal, and there might be frustrations along in there, um, but we know that we all want the same thing. And if we can trust each other that we're working towards the same goal, that goes really far. And we've been very lucky 
um, over the last few years to, to really be building a great relationship, especially with our local police departments. Um, we're currently working on a lethality assessment program with police departments throughout our county um, for law enforcement officers to be able to assess at every domestic violence call, what's the risk of lethality for this person? And for the highest risk people who are at the highest risk of being murdered in the future by their partner, law enforcement work to connect them directly with our services. So it's a benefit for law enforcement because domestic violence calls are dangerous for them too, and everything we can do to get a survivor into services quickly means that they're less likely to be called out on those dangerous calls. And it's a benefit for us because we're getting survivors who really need our support to connect with us as soon as possible. So that's something we've seen over the last year or so that's been a huge benefit, and we're so grateful um, for our law enforcement department stepping up and really taking that on. And another population, I guess, that you work a lot with is healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So kind of describe what that partnership looks like and how you interact with them. Mm -hmm. So we, like I said, we respond 24 hours a day to local emergency rooms. So anyone who's been sexually assaulted and comes into an emergency room, anyone who's been um, abused who comes in and, and reports that, or even just it's suspected by um, hospital staff, they call us 24 hours a day. Um, actually, under the Illinois Sexual Assault Survivors Emergency Treatment Act, it's required by law that they call us anytime a survivor comes into the emergency room who's been sexually assaulted. And then we're there to um, make sure the hospital knows the survivor's rights and is um, following those. So, for example, under CECEDA, the Sexual Assault Survivors Emergency Treatment Act, survivors are entitled to immediate triage in a private room. So if the, if the ER is just packed to the brim that night and there's all sorts of, of issues going on, that person can't be asked to wait in the waiting room or put into a room with another, another um, person in the, in the hospital. They have to be taken immediately back and put into a private room. And our advocates are there to, to help someone who might not be as familiar with that law to remember some of those things and um, make sure that that survivor is having their rights respected. Um, also under CECEDA, a survivor can't be charged for any of the services they receive in the emergency room or any necessary follow-up care. So that's another thing we can help the hospital think through um, what they need to do to make sure that they're not billing for that, that they're, they're not um, billing insurance and then applying for reimbursement, anything. It can't be charged. So we're there to help rem remind some of those laws that we're very familiar with, that other people might not be as familiar with because they don't work with it on a daily basis. We're also there to help survivors who are making the decision about if they want evidence collection taken when they come into a hospital. And that can really, that can really be helpful for uh, medical staff because that can be a very traumatic process. And having a supporter in the room while that's going on who can explain what's happening can make a big difference for a doctor or a nurse who has tons of other patients. They've got a lot going on. They're busy. They're trying to get through their work as quickly as possible. We're there to provide some of that bedside you know, support and emotional advocacy that that hospital staff or medical staff just aren't given the time for with how busy they are constantly. So given the scope of services, mm -hmm. both the breadth and the depth yep. of services, what are your key kind of organizational challenges to do all of this work? So the demand is there mm -hmm. for sure especially the more successful you are in getting the word out. Right. You have more people coming forward, so your right. demand keeps increasing. As an organization, what should the public know about how they can help you do the work that you do? Mm -hmm. So, of course, like any agency, one of the biggest organizational challenges is funding. We just don't have enough funding, and we never do. Um, 
we went through a three-year budget crisis where the state wasn't even funding nonprofits. So we've certainly experienced the highs and lows of, of funding, but we're always struggling to utilize our resources as effectively as possible to meet as much of the need as we can. But it's never never enough to provide the wide variety of services that, that survivors require. And one of the other things we're finding, um, and I would say we've been talking a lot more about that over the last few years, is that survivors' needs are so complex now. Um, there's a lot of uh, interconnectedness between needs and a lot of needs that go beyond cut and dry domestic violence sexual assault. So someone may be a victim of domestic violence, but their biggest concern right now might be a lack of affordable childcare. They can't even start thinking about processing the trauma they've gone through and sitting down with a counselor because they can't find someone to watch their kids while they go to work and they're worried about losing their job. So affordable childcare, um, jobs that pay living wages that allow someone to to be able to pay their bills and survive even in a place where the cost of living is relatively low like DeKalb. Um, those are challenges that aren't, aren't really within our staff's purview, aren't really within our training to provide, but we see that as a huge need for our clients. Or um, substance abuse treatment. A lot of our clients, not a lot, some of our clients come in with um, substance abuse, uh, addiction disorders due to the trauma they've experienced. And getting that help for that, again, we're not medical professionals or um, clients who are coming in with complex medical needs and they need a safe place to stay, but maybe they need more intensive medical care as well. Where do you stay when you need 24 hour nursing and a safe location where you have access to trauma counselors and therapists? It gets really complicated very quickly and a lot of it is outside our scope of service. So we're seeing more and more the need for all sorts of helping professions and all sorts of helping organizations to partner together because it's not just counseling for domestic violence. It's also, how am I going to get to my job if I don't have a car? Where can I get you know appropriate work clothing? Where can I get treatment for substance issues? Um, how can I build my resume? Um, how am I going to take care of my kids when I'm making minimum wage? Uh, there's a lot of issues that play in together that get very complicated very, very quickly. It's very intersectional in the need for services now. And a lot of it is, is not something that Safe Passage can provide on our own. So we really see the need for more interconnected services. So in Linnea's dream world, wave a magic mm -hmm. wand, what could that look like? Are there models out there yeah. where other communities are doing it a little bit differently? Yeah, there are. Um, I don't think there's any model I've seen yet that I think completely takes all of the issues on and addresses all of it. Um, if we were going to do that, we would be, um, we would be needing an, an organization that focused on child care, um, livable wages, affordable health care, racism, yeah. sexism, yeah. homophobia. I mean, we'd, we'd have to get <laughs> all the world's social ills together because all of it affects our clients. Um, but we, there are some really interesting models out there. There's uh, a model called the Family Justice Center. Um, I believe in Illinois we have one in Rockford, and I think they're opening one in the southern part of this state, but I think maybe Peoria, but don't don't hold me to that for sure. It's a model that was... Uh, that's been tested and run in California for a long time and expanded across the nation. And that's where all of these different services that affect 
violence in our communities are housed in one building. So you might have law enforcement in there. You're going to have domestic violence counselors and sexual Almost assault like a counselors. Co-location yep, you're going to have DCFS in there. You're going to have um, housing in there. You're going to have job support in there. So everything's in one place. So someone doesn't have to have an appointment at Safe Passage and then an appointment across town at the Housing Authority and then an appointment across town at Ben Gordon for where. Uh, you know, to see a psychiatrist, and then an appointment across town for something else and something else and something else. It's all in one location, so it's easier for survivors to access the services they need, and it's easier for organizations to work more closely together. So really co-locating those services has been shown to um, have a pretty big effect on how those services can be effectively provided. And any particular type of volunteers you're looking for right now? Um, folks who might speak different languages, is that a it's need? It's always great to have yeah. bilingual and bicultural um, Spanish of Spanish language speakers, of course, but any other language. We get clients um, whose backgrounds are from all over the place, so it's really helpful to have uh, people who understand that experience, a friendly face who speaks the same language as I do, who, you know, cooks the same food that I do. You know, that's just always such a relief for someone to know. I'm not alone here. I've got someone who understands me and my background. So um, bilingual is always helpful. Um, but really, anyone who's passionate about this, you can really make a big difference. And donations of items, are there things that you guys are always kind of on the lookout for? Yeah, I think you guys have an Amazon we, wish list. Right? We, keep, we have an Amazon yeah. wish list, and we keep our wish list updated on our website okay. with our most needed items. And we change that on a regular basis because sometimes it's pillows. Sometimes it's new underwear. Sometimes it's headphones. Um, it's, a, you know, it, it's always changing kind of what we're running low on right now. So we, I always recommend people check that out. Um, we always really appreciate new items being donated. Um, it really helps our clients to feel cared for and feel safe when they um, really recognize that people are going out of their way to make them feel welcome. Um, gas cards are always a need for us. Our clients are often struggling to put gas in the car, get to work, get to childcare, get to court. So those kinds of donations make a big difference. Even gift cards to places like Walgreens and CVS. Um, a lot of our clients struggle to afford their medications or maybe they've had to flee home and they couldn't take any of their prescriptions with them. So now they're in their shelter and they've got to get five prescriptions all at once by tomorrow so that and they even can with insurance even with insurance there's still yeah. those copays so yeah. yeah a lot of those gift cards to places like that make a big difference for our clients who are trying to get uh, maybe medications that they've left at home or important documents things like that so please consider getting gifts for teens we have a lot of teenage uh, kids who are coming in with their parents into our shelter and, every, you know, we get a lot of great donations for little kids because those are the fun things to buy, right. cute toys, cute clothes, um, which is wonderful and we love it. But we often find that our teen clients are kind of overlooked around the holiday season. So if you're if you're thinking about buying some extra Christmas gifts to donate to people who might need more, um, think about teens. And I think some of us is like, what would I buy a 15-year-old? Right. Like, it's sometimes easier when they're four yeah. <laughs> to come up with a iTunes gift, gift card. Yeah, iTunes. Headphones. <laughs> Anything electronic. Yep. We've, like, yeah. journals and art supplies. I have Love noticed that. that. Yeah. yeah. The adult coloring books. Yeah, adult and coloring cool books. watercolor pens. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. Yeah. Super fun. Is there anything um, other than what you've already shared that the public might be surprised about Safe Passage? If, if you don't think you know someone who's been affected by violence, you're wrong. 
Even if they haven't told you, I guarantee each and every one of us knows someone who's been a victim of domestic violence or been a victim of sexual assault. And it's really important that we, in our everyday lives, are, are doing what we can to support survivors because you know there's someone listening to you who's been through this and they're kind of seeing how you react to other things to decide if you're a safe person to go to for support. So they see how you respond when there's a Me Too case in the news. They see um, what you do when someone makes a joke about domestic violence or about sexual assault. They're waiting to hear your reactions. And when you stand up, when you say, I believe that, that survivor who came forward, or I don't think those kinds of jokes are funny, or we don't say those kinds of things in our family, or when they see that you value consent, you ask someone before you hug them. Um, they see those things and they know, okay, this is a safe place. Maybe I could tell someone what's going on. Maybe I could tell someone what's happening to me. Um, and that makes all the difference. We need people who are speaking up and who are saying, I stand with survivors. We hope you enjoyed this episode of All Things Local, a monthly podcast brought to you from the School of Public and Global Affairs at Northern Illinois University. I'm Dr. Alicia Shadman. Join me next time to discuss issues and ideas facing our local communities. To learn more about our faculty and programs here at NIU, go to niu.edu backslash SPGA.